Welcome to the Open Sea Podcast. Here at Open Sea, we recognize that the Bible was written in languages full of richness and beauty. Our goal is to explore the beauty of the New Testament, written in ancient Greek, that can sometimes become obscured in English translations. We desire to bridge the gap of scholarship and make these conversations about biblical Greek accessible to all curious people. Whether you have studied Greek for years or you are embarking on this journey today, all are welcome to take a seat at the table. Welcome to the Open Seat Podcast, Episode 5. My name is Olivia Madrid, and I am here with my friends, Caitlin McCracken. Hello, hello. And Cade Robertson. Hey, everyone. And today on this episode, we have our very first guest ever, Megan Gunner. Hey, guys. Yeah, Megan. Um, Megan <laughs> Megan uh, was one of our Greek classmates in college. Uh, so it's just going to be super exciting to have her on and just get to talk about the Greek and how we all find joy in it. Um, so as we begin, I have a good question to ask you all. And that is, what old person thing do you do? I'll go first. I have a small little lazy boy recliner in my bedroom mm-hmm. with a lamp next <laughs> yes. to my bookshelf. So I can mm-hmm. chill in my little old man reading corner and read mm-hmm. books. That's wow. good. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I'm not prepared. Go, Megan. Okay. Um, I, yeah, I was, when I got this question, I was like, I don't feel like I do the typical old people things of like crocheting or doing puzzles, but I feel like I'm obsessed. myself. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I'm obsessed with rocking chairs, which I feel like old people are obsessed with rocking chairs. Every Mm -hmm. time I see a rocking chair, I have to sit in it. So. So have you ever been to Cracker Barrel? Oh, yeah. I love Cracker Barrel. I sit in all of them. I just go down the line, try them all out. Old person thing, Cracker Barrel. (laughs) Well, as Megan just so kindly pointed out, I am a crocheter. uh, So that's one strike against me. I also go to bed hecka early, and it's been by... I'm in bed by 8.30 this past week. Uh, Oh, my goodness. I don't understand why. But it's who I am now, I it's guess. because you're not my roommate anymore. <laughs> I know. Caitlin keeps people up, and it's ridiculous. I, I also, Cade, purchased a chair that, you've seen it, rocks, swivels, and glides, and reclines. And I also enjoy sitting in that reading. Anyways, <laughs> moving on, Caitlin. <laughs> Olivia, are you, Do you drink tea? Are you, like, 70, 72? Is that how old you are? Am I 70? Yeah, are you 70 years old? That was a lot of stuff. Yeah, <laughs> I know. That's just one thing. My mom my mom has told me, she's like, you came out of the womb as an old lady. And I was like, oh, okay, thank you. <laughs> Thanks, mom. Um, I guess one thing that I like to do um, is make myself tea, sit on the couch, and turn on the fire. Sometimes I just sit there. And that seems a very old person thing to do, but it's nice and cozy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, there you have it. There's our old people things. Um, so as I started this episode, I mentioned that Megan was one of our classmates, but Megan, we want to know who the heck are you so people know who the heck you are. Um, 
So just say kind of whatever you want to say. And also we'd like to know what the top three essential things are about like who you are that you think people need to know. Yeah. So my name is Megan. I yeah went to college with all of these awesome people and took at least two out of the three, uh, four great classes with them. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and just graduated in May. So I'm a recent college graduate. I'm a New Jersey to Colorado transplant. Now I live here and work here. And yeah, and I guess top three essential things about me are, um, this is like a serious one and then I have silly ones, but (laughs) my serious one is that I'm like super passionate about discipleship. That's like number one thing in my life that I'm passionate about and just like inviting people into my life and, um, doing life with others to become more like Jesus and, um, yeah, become more devoted to the Lord. And yeah, another thing about me is I love games of any kind. I, like it'll be a board game, a card game, like a group game, pick up basketball, literally anything. I'm super down to play a game anytime. And then the last one is that everyone likes to say I have the alter ego of a seventh grade boy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> because I think bodily function jokes are really funny and I basically eat like a seventh grade boy. Lots of Cheetos and... <laughs> that's incredible i don't know mac and cheese <laughs> seventh grade boys eat mac and cheese i don't know probably and um i burp a lot so everyone is like you're a seventh Love grade it. boy <laughs> yeah oh that's amazing that's great those are uh, essential i love it so you mentioned you live and work here what do you do for work and where do you go to church Yeah, so those are the same place. I work at a church, um, which is Ascent Church in Evergreen, Colorado. Um, I am the worship and student director there. And um, yeah, it's a little mountain church, Bible community church, and it's awesome. Super tight-knit group of people. That's really cool. If you did like a flyover zooming what has your experience with greek been and looked like yeah so i've taken four semesters of greek and all in college and i you know started out um in greek one and two because those are required for my major which was biblical studies and so pretty much everyone takes those classes or hebrew and i chose greek and then um really loved it and did well with it and so wanted to keep going to a place where I felt like I could read the Greek New Testament on my own and be able to use Greek skills for interpretation down the road and so that meant going on to Greek 3 and 4 um and those were really awesome experiences with like a smaller group of people who were really committed to learning the language and committed to digging into the word um in the original language which was super awesome just to speak to that real quick, like I remember after grade two thinking, wow, I know so much about the Bible now. We can read the Greek. We're so smart. And within a week of Greek three, it's like, I know absolutely nothing. nothing. <laughs> Which so true. was so awesome to be able to walk through that experience with um, these awesome friends. Mm-hmm. Something that Megan did not mention is one, she's uber duper smart 
with Greek, and she was she also really a tutor for the rest of us who did not understand the Greek and for the other classes. Uh, she's, yeah, she just, I don't know, language seems to be a gift for you, and so it's fun to watch you use that and see that lived out. Um, the last question that I have for you and want to ask is, how does Greek impact your walk with the Lord? Yeah, um, I think that Greek has impacted my walk with the Lord um, in one way that's more obvious and one way that's not as obvious, but one is just like enriched reading of the word and enriched theology too. Um, And just being able to be doing my own devotions or being in a conversation with a group of people and, you know, thinking like, okay, what is what really was the intended meaning here? And being able to go to the original language and kind of do that analyzing myself um, has been really powerful um, and has given me even more ownership of my faith, I would say, because I think sometimes you feel like you have to rely on people who you know are so much smarter than you and are scholars and stuff, but having the tools to do that on my own has been powerful. Um, and then also just, I think, being in you know school of theology in, in college and um, there was sometimes a hard or there was like blurred lines between academia and devotion and like what is, mm. you know, the just the intellectual pursuit and what's the pursuit of the Lord. And so Greek has impacted me a lot in that way where that was a really like pivotal subject for me to be like, okay, I could really just dig into the academia here because there's so much intellectual content, but how am I going to use this more intellectual side of um, walk with the Lord and the Christian life to benefit my devotion to the Lord and pursuit of the Lord on a personal level, not just an academic level. Mm-hmm. So Megan, part of our um, Greek four class that we took together was, well, actually, no, let me start over. So one of the main parts of our Greek four class that we all took together was writing a research project based off of whatever we wanted. It was either a word study or we got to choose. There was a lot of flexibility. I think most of us (laughs) wrote a paper relating to verbal aspect theory. Um, And since you didn't graduate that year, you had one more year left. Cotter gave you some awesome opportunities to present your project and so you're basically just a full-blown expert on verbal aspect theory at this point and so can you tell us like give us a brief overview of what your project was that you worked on during greek four yeah totally well first of all i also i would not call myself an expert so let's get that straight but i'm uh yeah i have some more insight into verbal aspect. You've spent many, many hours studying this. Many hours and many tears. Okay. Um, (laughs) So my project was titled Verbal Aspect and Prominence in Koine Greek. And then the subtitle is a genre comparison between the Gospel of John and 1 John. And so basically what I did is I translated through all of the Gospel of John and 1 John, and then I kind of sorted everything into all of the verbs, into like which tenses are these verbs. And I wanted to focus on verbs that were in perfect and pluperfect tenses, um, just because there's some cool things about 
verbs in those tenses in Koine Greek. And I really, what I really wanted to see at the crux of this research project was, um, does genre affect the way that verbal aspect is used? Or basically, does genre affect a way that an author uses verbs in the Greek language to communicate what they're trying to say? Um, and so, yeah, I translated everything and then I had to look at like all the root words and find how often do these um, occur in the perfect and pluperfect tense and just get a lot of statistics so I could kind of analyze like the way that the author, John, was using um, the perfect and pluperfect tenses in narrative genre in the Gospel of John versus in the genre of epistle in First John. So part of what we want to go over today is definitely the results that you found in your project and looking at those statistics and all you've got prepared <laughs> to share with us. But before we do that, let's take some time breaking down what verbal aspect theory is. When we think about verbs uh, in a, like an English talk context, um, verbs are always associated with time. Time is, would you say that, like, would you guys agree, time is the most important part of what a verb is in the English? Is that accurate? I'd say time is the most important part of what tense of a verb is uh, in the English language. You. Yeah, so time is the most important part of an English verb's tense. But that's different in the Greek. Um, a lot of research over the past 10, 20 years or so has really challenged that understanding of, well, time is the same way in the Greek, and time operates the same way in the Greek. And a lot of that research has kind of led to this idea of verbal aspect um, with the assumption that time is not communicated in the grammatical form of a verb. So that being said, what is verbal aspect theory? A very simple definition of verbal aspect, which we might have to get into a little bit more, is that verbal aspect is the author's perspective on a given action. So the Greek speaker or writer chooses to present an action from a certain subjective like vantage point. So it is, I mean, dependent on the word itself, but also has a lot to do with like the author and how they choose to present like that word. Yeah. And the, the differentiating thing about that with the English language is like the author doesn't really have a choice of what tense they're going to use, especially if they're like writing a story because mm -hmm. you just have to put it in the order that the events happen because it's all about time. So like the choice of perspective that the author has. So the verbal aspect is more prominent in Greek verbs than like the time, which is like the action that's performed and like the way in which the action is performed. So aspect is kind of the primary characteristic of a Koine Greek verb. So yeah. does anybody have an example of like how, like you're saying, um, how this works in English, how we describe things, how we write stories? Anybody have like a little scenario to describe? I think before we do examples, because I think we should do examples, um, I also have some notes on just the three different types of aspect that there are in the Greek. So we should go over those real quick before doing an example. So there are three types of aspect in the Greek when it comes to Greek verbs. Um, and as I go through them, I'll try and give some examples. So we just kind of 
bring everything together. Uh, the first type is the imperfective aspect. And the present tense and the imperfect tense fall under this category. So whenever you see the present and the imperfect tense in the Greek, you know that they're referring to an ongoing action that is still in the process of happening. It hasn't been completed yet. Uh, so an example in the English would be like, I am teaching, or I teach, I was teaching. All three of these, the verb is still in the process of happening. When you see the present and the imperfect tenses in like a story, in a narrative, in the text, um, they're not background verbs. Like They're more specific verbs that are adding to what's happening, if that makes sense. So like Jesus said, and Jesus said is going to be in the present tense, whereas and Jesus went here would be in the next type of aspect, which is the perfective aspect. Mm -hmm. The perfective aspect refers to pretty much just aorist tense verbs. Um, These verbs typically carry along the main line of the narrative. So kind of the back, not necessarily background information, but verbs that are kind of establishing the setting for the story. Um, So they're not necessarily as quote unquote prominent or important as like a present tense verb or a perfect tense verb would be. The final type of aspect would be the state of aspect and the perfect tense and the pluperfect tense would fall under this aspect category, which is kind of confusing because I know we have a perfective aspect and then the perfect tense isn't even in that aspect. So I know that that's kind of confusing. <laughs> I don't know who decided that, <laughs> but the state of aspect references like a previous action that has already been completed, um, but the current context is affected by this completed action. So these are often viewed as more prominent or more even more important verbs sometimes. This is what the theory of verbal aspect is, is that the state of aspect implies more important verbs um, because they're almost the author is almost using them as a signal to the to the audience, to the readers, that, hey, this is adding context to what is happening here, and this is really important. So those are the three different aspects, and those are kind of, kind of gets into the idea of prominence of, you know, the aorist tense, kind of more background, present and imperfect tense are more important to the, like, specifics of the story, while the perfect and pluperfect tense are highlighting some key actions or events in the story. And that would all be from the author's perspective as he's writing. So yeah, just to throw in some examples again um, with also the prominence part of verbal aspect theory is if we're moving from more background information to most emphasis that would go perfective aspect to imperfective aspect to state of aspect so for perfective like you're just kind of maybe you're just like talking to a friend and you're setting up your story this isn't even like the meat of your story or the main point but you're just like oh yeah like five years ago I taught at this place um And yeah, that's not even really the meat of your story. You're just kind of like throwing that detail in there. Um, 
and then imperfective, it's like, maybe it's the context of your story, but it's not like, or, or it's like, is the meat of your story, but it's not the main point or the punchline of your story. And you're just like, yeah, like right now I am teaching here at this school and that's my job, whatever. And then for stative aspect, um, this in prominence, like my is probably going to be the most prominent part of your story. And it's like the thing you're wanting to emphasize the most. So, um, it's like, and then state of aspect two says it's to describe a state of affairs resulting from a previous action or state. So you're like having a conversation and you're like trying to get your friend to pay attention to this is the most important thing you're trying to communicate to them. Like, Hey, listen up. Like I had taught, at this school and therefore like something really important. And that's the most important thing you're trying to communicate. Mm -hmm. So then how does this um, affect our understanding of the gospels? Because the gospels are primarily in narrative, the genre of a narrative, a story. I think you can almost view verbal aspect as the three different aspects that we have are answering different questions in the story. So when it comes down to, the aorist tense, you know, the author will use the aorist tense to answer the questions of where this happened, when this happened, sometimes getting into the what, but the present and imperfect tenses are used way more to answer the question of what, and sometimes the question of how, uh, and far more occasionally. It's not a common, you know, tense that we see, but when we do see the perfect tense or the pluperfect tense, it's almost always answering the question of why. Um, kind of ignoring the how of like, doesn't matter, you know, that's what the present is for. It's like how we got here, what 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 we're doing to get here. And the per- perfect is answering the question of why, which is oftentimes why it's viewed as the more prominent tense that authors use. Yeah. I don't know how to ask this, but I want just so people understand, like what is a broad couple sentence summary of like what we just talked about and then how that goes into like what Megan's project was. You could say, so, you know, the verbal aspect is the author's perspective on an action. And that includes both their perspective on um, whether the action is, ongoing or completed or that kind of perspective. And it also includes their perspective on um, how important is this, is this action to the story and what question is answering in narrative. Mm -hmm. So how does that play into your project and like what you found Megan? Yeah. So I looked much more at that prominence part of verbal aspect theory. And I wanted to know, cause you know, we had looked at the gospel of John or examples of this prominence thing and saw that in the gospels and a narrative, there were quite a few times when the author would use the perfect or pluperfect tense to answer the question why in the narrative or to really kind of give us a signal fire to like pay attention. This is important. Um, and I thought that was really cool. I think a lot Mm -hmm. of us did because Mm -hmm. most of us did our projects on verbal aspect theory and kind of focused on prominence. Um, 
And well, because it's super easy if you're always trying to find like what's the main point of something yeah. or what's the purpose, and yeah. this is just an easier way to see it because it's ingrained already in the verb. Yeah, like we've mm-hmm. talked about before, like you can visually see it, and it's not a, like, well, I think this is the main point. So I think totally. that's what's so gravitating to this idea. Yeah, and I remember our professor using the example of John eleven and the story of Lazarus and being like most people or a lot of people when they preach that story will like focus on Jesus wept. You know, like Mm -hmm. this is really cool and this shows Jesus's humanity and this shows his emotionality and that's not in the perfect tense. And I think actually it's in the perfective tense uh, or sorry, perfective aspect. It's in the aorist tense, which is like more background information in narrative. And so um, this can kind of help us to not be um, doing eisegesis, but to be doing exegesis. Um, So in that What does that mean, Megan? Sorry, what? I didn't know. I was like, I can't tell that no. word is. I was, I was going to say, in that example, what is the main point then? What what verbs did the author use in the perfect tense? Yeah, and though while true that Jesus wept, and that's like important to set up the story, what is yeah. the author, John, actually trying to convey as he's relating that to us, the readers? Yeah. Um, I remember, I like don't have it in front of me right now, but I do remember looking at that passage and the the verbs that were in the perfect tense were about um, the grave clothes. And it was much more about, you know, coming out of grave clothes and the whole concept of resurrection that is super important in that passage and verbal aspect is just one way that we can tell the main point because also in that passage jesus uses like the truly truly i say to you mm. i think mm-hmm. yeah i'm yeah, the resurrection, I'm and, the the resurrection and the life and the i am statement so there's other ways that we can tell the main point but and verbal aspect will just like bolster that and support that um, and that way we were like positive you know this is the main point the main point is not that jesus wept and he's emotional it's that in him is resurrection. So Cade mentioned earlier that you have kind of some findings from your research and kind of statistics on certain verbs and things. So what did you find? Yeah. So I found um, that it's only about half the time whether it's in the genre of narrative with the gospel of John or the genre of epistle um, with first John, it's only about half the time that perfect or pluperfect verbs are being used for prominence. And so this tells us that like, this is a really cool concept, but also it's not foolproof and like a hundred percent all the time. And we can't just constantly rely on this to try and find the main point. Or we can't say that like every perfect verb is indicating what the author's trying to emphasize the most. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was pretty important. But then another um, finding that I had was that out of those verbs, those instances where a perfect or pluperfect verb like possibly was being used for emphasis, 91% of those had to do with one of the themes in mm-hmm. John, um, in yeah, in the Gospel of John and all of his other books. And then in First John, 100%, every single occurrence of perfect or pluperfect that was indicating prominence and emphasis had to do with a theme. So what this tells us is that we can kind of look at, if we can look at a perfect or pluperfect verb, like that can 
potentially help us to pick out what the themes in John are. And then like one of the questions I had beyond that was like, okay, the John themes are really obvious in his writing, like light and darkness and um, just stuff like that. But in other books of the Bible where they're not as obvious what the themes are, like can these prominent perfect and pluperfect verbs help us to discern what the themes are of the author? Hmm. Yeah, that's really good. And especially because we've been talking um, about themes in the book of First John, like it's so apparent in the first chapter, like the light and darkness, like you said, and um, fellowship and abiding. And um, yeah, it's cool that like the actual language and how John wrote this, like his, the grammar that he uses points to that and makes it clear. Like the Bible's not like a mystery book for us to like I don't know, discern all these little things because of all these hidden stuff. Like it's just in the grammar of how the Greeks spoke and wrote, which is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's really beautiful because I'm going to, I don't know the reference, but the Bible talks about like not a dot or a yoda will be removed from Mm. this. Like it's all intended to be there. And that goes right down to the structure of the language and Mm -hmm. the grammar. It's not, that's not just like some figurative language. That's Mm -hmm. literal, like every tense is intentional. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and that goes back to even, I think it was our second episode when we were talking about the Greek and just the Lord intentionally, again, chose this language for it to originally be written down in. And I think there's just, yeah, so much beauty and depth that can be seen from actually diving deep into it. So Megan, thank you so much for like sharing all of that. I think that really demonstrates, while this is a bit of a newer theory and a bit of a newer idea when it comes to studying the Greek, it's really important. It does carry a lot of weight and is very relevant to the text itself. Um, but we should still use it with caution, and that's kind of what I want to like touch on um, real quick as well, because just because aspect is the primary characteristic of a verb doesn't mean um, the author's choice of aspect is always the most important thing at play in a passage. And so, because I remember as a young Greek student, like, I was so excited when hearing about this theory. I'm like, every time I see a perfect, it's going to mean that the author is emphasizing something. And that's just not always the case. Um, sometimes certain verbs prefer certain tense forms. So, Megan, you mentioned earlier before we started recording uh, the Greek word oida that John uses over and over and over again. Can you tell us a bit about that verb real quick? Yeah. So... The Greek word oida means I know, and you will never see that verb in another tense other than perfect or pluperfect. It only exists in the perfect and pluperfect. And so when you're like trying to study prominence and come up with statistics for that, that will like really throw off your statistics because then like, and it's used like so many times, like there are huge numbers of this word being used. So for example, um, like with, if I include the word oida in my data, then only 14% of the perfect and pluperfect verbs in the gospel of John are potentially 
being used in a prominence way and trying to emphasize a point or emphasize that verb. Only 14% and then 86% are not. Um, And oida is making up a lot of that 86%. But if you take the word oida and other words like it, where they are essentially stuck in that tense, they're not ever going to be used in another tense, then you get there are 43% of the perfect and pluperfect verbs that are potentially being used in an emphasis way versus 57% that are not. So it's much more even split when you take out words that are kind of like stuck in that tense form. And it's just like, if you think about it, like a word that 100% of the time shows up in that tense form, it's not really significant when you see it showing up in that tense form. But if there's a word that like, 80% of the time, it's like aorist, and then like 15% of the time, it's present, and then 5% of the time, it's perfect. It's like, okay, those like few instances where it's showing up in the perfect tense, that looks like an intentional choice of the author. Like, let's pay attention to what's going on there. Mm -hmm. And there's a couple other things to point out as well when it comes to aspect. Uh, Just a couple of takeaways from Merkel's book that I have in front of me. Uh, first, sometimes the present tense, which again should be referring to a continuous or ongoing action, isn't used in that way. Uh, the example that Merkel brings up is in Acts 12, verse 8, where Peter's in prison, an angel appears and basically leads Peter out of the prison and sets him free. Uh, one of the first things that the angel says to Peter is, get up and put on your cloak. Uh, and he tells him to put on his cloak in the present tense, but that's like a completed action. Like that's a one-time completed action. So, you know, aspects can't always be the primary thing. It's like the point that Merkel's making Mm -hmm. because that is an action that very well could have been done in the aorist, should have been done in the aorist if if aspect is always accurate in that way, but it's done in the present. And so there just needs to be some discernment and looking at individual examples like that. And then one more example that Merkel brings up is in Matthew 16, 24, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And in Luke, Luke adds the clarifying word of take up his cross daily. Uh, What's interesting here is that a couple of these verbs are done in the aorist tense, which if aspect is primary, like, well, it's, you do it once. You're done. Is you're that's it. But Luke makes gives the qualifier of do this daily. And so again, we should just, you know, pause in this moment, use discernment. Is is Matthew saying we only need to take up our cross the one time to follow after Jesus, and then we follow after Jesus continually? Or as Luke says, do we need to do this every day in our pursuit of following Jesus? And so as an overzealous young Greek student. I wouldn't have picked up on those things. And I very quickly fell into some of those dangers of over-interpreting what verbal aspect theory is and viewing that as the most important thing that's at play. So I just thought it was, I thought it would be helpful to add those qualifiers of, you know, using, you know, of when you're studying verbal aspect, like not to get too carried away. So I have a question as you guys have been talking and Cade, you're, Good words of caution, and Megan, you mentioned that um, you, based on your research and data in John and First John, how 
the author, John, (laughs) writes, um, it's only about 50-50 with these words, whether they're used for emphasizing the main point or a theme of the passage, or they're just there because it fit the tense like this had happened and that's all there is to say. There's nothing alerting about it. Um, So practically, I guess, how do we as um, people who read the word and study the word in our studies, how do we discern which way it is? Is it here just because the tense fits the context or is it here because it's unusual, the author could have used something else, but he chose to use this tense to bring our attention to something? Um, my suggestion is just be in the word, like be, look in the Greek, start looking at perfects and pluperfects. Megan didn't know that oida was a word that always falls in the perfect and is not going to deviate from that until she started getting into it and started seeing kind of like the repetition, understanding a little bit more about like aspect theory and what that looks like. And so I think that's honestly the only way you can do that. There um, is, oh, there are some resources that are coming out right now about verbal aspect, but it is a newer thing. So there's not a ton of information on it. So I think like Megan pointed out, one good indicator, like she said that she saw was it the themes in the book were in the perfect. So I think that points you kind of, you know, in the same way. And then again, oida, it's always like that. So it's not going to be, you know, prominent. So you just, I think, have to be in the Greek and be in the word, which how fun is that? You get to be learning about Jesus and get to look at it more in depth and just learn all the intricacies of the Bible. So I don't think you can go wrong doing that. Yeah. And one other thing I'd say is kind of going off of what you're saying, Olivia, is just that when you're kind of trying to discern verbal aspect, you're trying to just kind of wade into that theory, you never want to have a zoomed in lens. Like you Mm -hmm. always want to have it zoomed out to some degree, whether you're zooming out in the story that it's like directly talking about. So if it's, you're zooming out to the story, you don't just want to like look at the tense and each individual verb and isolate those from the story and say, well, this one's perfect. So this verb about walking is the most important thing in the story. You want to be zoomed out and say like, does it make sense that this would be the most important thing that John or Luke or God is trying to communicate in this or like Olivia was talking about sometimes you need to be zoomed out to like all of the new testament when you get more knowledge of it and you're just more familiar with it and if you see the word oida you know from your reading of more of the new testament in greek that that one never shows up in any other tense and so you always want to be zoomed out to some degree and not be hyper focused and isolating verbs and theories yeah so context 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 like is mentioned in a lot of talks when we talk about rightly handling the Word of God and um, thoughtfully and using our brains to dive into the study of God's Word. I think Megan even mentioned earlier in this episode the difference between exegesis and eisegesis, which are very big words. Exegesis means looking at the Word and letting the basically letting the Word speak for itself and to discern the meaning, while eisegesis is twisting what the word says to fit what you want the word to mean. And so 
I think this very much applies to this conversation. Like, does this perfect, you know, if you're looking at a perfect verb, does it fit the main point of the book? Does it fit the context? Does it make sense with what the author has been saying that this would be an emphasized verb? Um, And I think that if you ask those questions as you're looking at a perfect verb, you can discern whether or not the verbal aspect is pushing a prominent understanding. Because on the flip side, you don't want to look at a perfect verb and assume verbal aspect is here, which is you know, a temptation, again, that I had as I was researching for my uh, project as well. So, because that would be eisegesis. That would be looking at the text, wanting it to mean what I want it to mean, mm-hmm. yeah. and thus making it mean that. Well, Megan, we have loved having you just on this episode. And, I mean, you know so much about the Greek, and I know you are always so humble about it, but it's just awesome to get to talk with you and just, yeah, glean from your knowledge and hopefully other people listening just get to, I don't know, grow for love of Greek and just God's word that we see evident in your life. So we're just grateful to have you here with us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's such an honor. Well, thank you guys for joining us for episode five. Uh, We're going to continue on our rhythm of talking about 1 John, which you can catch in the next episode. We will see you then. Bye. 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 Thanks for taking a seat with us today. We hope you were encouraged as we discuss the glory of God revealed through His Word. If you'd like to join or participate in the conversation, follow us at Open Seat Podcast on Instagram or send questions to our email, openseatconvos at gmail.com. Until next time, grace and peace.